I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. It was almost a year ago, around the same time, I was still in my Scary Smart book tour, where uh, I, I have a tendency to overdo things on book tours. So I planned like a million podcasts and it was quite busy. Like I got podcasts after podcasts after podcasts to just talk about my message, which what really mattered to me. Some of them were quite significant, others were not, but I didn't know when a podcast popped up in my calendar, I showed up and I started to tell my story. And then uh, one of those thingies that popped up in my calendar was a podcast called Saturn Returns. I dial in expecting to talk about AI and there she is wearing a Pink Floyd t-shirt <laughs> and really, really peaceful and calm and spiritual. And it really took us time to even start recording. I, you know, we started the conversation with me saying like, who are you? And, and from there we spoke about everything, you know, from life to experiences, to spirituality. And then we thought, well, it might be a good idea to record this. And so we pressed record and uh, until today, uh, my episode on Saturn Returns still gets a ton of compliments on social media and people thanking me and thanking uh, Kagi, Kagi Dunlop, who eventually after we finished the conversation turned out to be a little celebrity. And I was <laughs> completely unaware. I texted her afterwards and I said, you should have said Kagi was the original cast of a show in the UK here called uh, Made in Chelsea, which made her very, very popular. Then she became a singer, songwriter, and entrepreneur with a brand that was called It's Why. And she just dabbles in a lot of things. And now she is the author of a book about to come out on the 18th of January that is called Saturn Returns, which <laughs> me has been the first person to read outside the uh, publishing group that she's working with, uh, which is such an honor because it is such a beautiful book. I know nothing about astrology whatsoever, and I don't understand why Saturn matters and why is it returning and when is it returning or are we the ones returning to, to it? I have no idea. So I'm going to ask all of those questions, even though I was educated in, in the book, but it was also a biography. So Kagi and I became really good friends. We met a few times ever. I was in the UK. We text every now and then when we need to ask each other's advice on something. And still, I didn't know the story. I didn't really know the background. And what was beautiful about this book is how she uses her, I don't know what to call it, her, let's call it celebrity life, 
on the image on the outside as the example uh, for the advice that she gives in the book, which is truly, truly uh, genuine and quite helpful on the path for people to find themselves and to find peace and happiness. So I want to cover both and I can promise you from knowing the way Kagi and I chat when we meet, you're going to love this conversation and I promise you, you're going to love this book. So thank you for making it here. Thank you for having me. This is my first podcast as an author. Yes. So it's quite, yeah, it's quite surreal having you talk about me and my book. Yes, surreal, I think, is the right way to look at this situation. I, I mean, also, honestly, I have not, I didn't expect the book to be what it is. And I, when you spoke about writing a book, which I know is not an easy process at all, I was sort of intrigued by what will come out. To be the first to read it, to be the first to record with you about it, I think is a privilege. And uh, yeah, I mean, I should be first on something, right? Because so. <laughs> <laughs> we, ha we had conversations when we first connected about the book. Yes. And you said that you, you know, you would love to read and stuff. I'm curious, did you, what expectation did you have of it? Because... Honest? Yeah. Right. I think Saturn Return is a very fancy name. It's a very good brand. Okay. I don't understand that stuff. I don't understand. <laughs> That's okay. I, right. I don't understand astrology. I don't understand why Saturn and not the sun, uh, you know, or uh, Mercury. Uh, does it feature Mercury in... Uh, not this book. No, but I mean, is it in astrology? Is yeah. That, yeah. It's, is it a planet or is it not a planet? We don't know, but it features in astrology. And I, I don't know about those things. Okay. But I expected you to write about learnings uh, from astrology that drive us to be a bit like you, that self-discovery. I thought so. But it was a lot more, honestly. And, and, I, and I don't say that lightly because I read all the time. Can we start with telling people a little bit about you? Because I think this book, to me, was that beautiful view of someone who is in the spotlight of stardom, who's basically saying it's not what you think it is. And, you know, when you're in the spotlight and you're constantly, you have what, 300 and some thousand followers on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I follow you and stalk you all the time. And the photos are perfect. And, you know, I can see that your love life is in a very good place. Your life is in a good place and so on. But I know inside that couldn't be that way. And I think this book was basically saying the dream is not what you think it is. Okay. At least what you used to see me on TV as, okay? Uh, you know, what you used to see me as a singer songwriter as, during that time, I was struggling with a lot. I was trying to find myself. I was trying to find my place in the world. And even though the picture may have appeared to be celebrity, but inside I was still searching. And I thought this was beautiful. Yeah, well, I think there's two points within that that have come out to me whilst you're speaking about it is that I think it is important to acknowledge and for people to understand that what we see, especially in the realms of celebrity and that kind of, you know, quote unquote stardom is perhaps not quite what people think it is. 
But then one of my intentions of the book was actually to demonstrate that everyone feels that way. And yeah. we see that all the time, especially through the lens of social media, whether or not you have 300,000 followers or 300, we are still trying to present ourselves in a certain way to the world mm. and constantly receiving information about each other that might not be accurate of what's going on internally. Yeah, and which I think is probably when I hosted Stephen Bartlett here on uh, on the podcast, he spoke about the same, he spoke about the idea that we follow stars on social media thinking that they are perfect in every possible way, that this is the life that we absolutely dream of, but that everyone is human and everyone is attempting to find their place in life just within different circumstances. But tell my audiences who are not from the UK about Made in Chelsea, about going to LA, about your story. Maybe okay. start when you're 15 if you want. Yeah, well, okay, we can start. We can start when I was 14. Let's start when I was 14 because we're going to relate it back to Saturn and to mm -hmm. kind of try and give you a little bit more of an understanding of that as we go. So your Saturn return happens in your late 20s, but we also have Saturn squares and oppositions. So Saturn as a planet has seasons like we have seasons and they are seven years. So if you think about our life from zero to seven, then seven to 14, quite formative, pivotal moments. So when I was 14, I was sent to boarding school. You know, I was very lucky in, to have that opportunity. And I unfortunately was so homesick that I had to, had to leave. Yeah. I found it a very difficult experience being away from home, being away from my family. And then I guess at that point I had this sort of sense of my own melancholy. Mm. And I would alchemize that into poetry. I would isolate myself a lot. I would write. And I always had this sort of sense of that duality in me of like, okay, this is observing the world. This is how people operate. This is how people fit in. But then this aspect of myself, I instinctively kept quite hidden. And, and it, it was, I guess, the more sensitive aspects of my character that felt too sensitive to actually function in the world. And <clears throat> that ties into my experience when I went to boarding school, that I felt so on the cusp of emotion all the time that it just felt... What, what is on the cusp of emotion? What does that mean? Just like throughout the day, I'd be sitting in class and I just remember this sort of avalanche of emotion coming over me. And to the, to, I couldn't control it, I couldn't contain it. And I think, you know, that's a very common thing for children but I felt like in a way I still feel that way I know <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that I've had to reconcile in myself that perhaps it's not it's beautiful. a hindrance that it's can it's be a beautiful gift in every possible way yeah. yeah I think we actually discussed it when we did we, when we were having coffee yeah. in Notting Hill yeah. yeah yeah and so yeah from that age then I, I left the boarding school um, cause one day my parents, my dad was like, this is just getting ridiculous. I'm going to come and pick you up and pack your bags for good. And I was happy to be home, but I did feel a little bit like I'd failed in some way. Like I hadn't, I couldn't stick it out. And then I went back to the school I was at before. And then I kind of went through this period of feeling very insular. I had 
braces as as we go through that stage of life it's an awkward one right we're going through puberty we're becoming women and men physically but we're still not emotionally mm. there and um yeah it was a it was an interesting time but i remember quite clearly at around 15 i was at a bus stop in hammersmith broadway waiting for the bus to go back to barns which is where i lived and feeling like I didn't have a sense of belonging but I was craving it and I remember so clearly at that point that this thought went through my head it was like if you alter yourself if you become like these people if you become like these girls you will belong you'll feel like you belong and so I kind of went on a bit of a mission from then it was almost like in that moment that I would adapt I would change, I would alter myself. I would become a chameleon and a shapeshifter to fit in because then I would feel like I belonged. And that kind of carried me through life and in a way I think, you know, through the analysis and the overthinking that I do is how I ended up on Made in Chelsea, which for those that don't know was one of the first reality shows in the UK. When it came about none of us really knew what it would entail how it would turn our lives upside down what it represented it was just something that kind of fell into my lap mm. and it wasn't a clear yes to do the show we kind of debated it whether it was a good or bad idea and looking back i'm still not entirely sure um, but i saw it as an opportunity and i did it and you know like you said at the beginning of this episode it represented that element of celebrity where it was portraying a certain lifestyle and a certain type of person that lived that lifestyle for reality tv there were many elements of it that were very fictional mm. not to burst the bubble for the producers but i'm sure most people have become aware of that because reality tv is such a popular genre these days so again it kind of pushed this thing if there was a a public version of me or persona mm. and then there was this reality in, yeah or more internal ones so they became more and more polarized so that that blew me away when i actually googled you after our conversation on the podcast mm -hmm. because so reality tv i think my maximum tolerance is around four seconds <laughs> of any show whatsoever because it's so fake mm -hmm. and I can see the fakeness so quickly mm -hmm. and it just appalls me in an interesting way mm -hmm. and yet the woman that I met that you know I spent two hours talking to uh, on the podcast and in our chat was very real very 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 deeply real okay and I think that dichotomy if you want is quite important to understand i mean i want to discuss it from how it affected you that divide and that polarity if you want that sort of almost um, what do you call it dual personality type life right yeah i sort of i reference it in the book as a bit of a jekyll and hyde situation oh, wow. or it became yeah, a bit yeah, like that yeah i mean in reality that's how it is and but i want to first talk about it from our listeners point of view how they get drawn into a story 
that is way more scripted than it is reality with a lot of fakeness. So tell us a bit about what was expected from you. and What was some of those dichotomies? Like, would they ask you to be something that you're not? Would they ask you to say certain things? How much of it was reality? How much of it was scripted? It all existed in a bit of a gray area. They would ask us to say stuff. They would construct situations. But bear in mind, at this point, I was 21 and I really, yeah. I, had no, I had no idea. And looking back retrospectively, I think, God, that was actually quite awful, the <laughs> situations that we were put in. Because, you know, everything's incredibly heightened. You have cameras all around, but you're told to go in and you have no idea what you're going into, what situation, but you've been sort of prepped in a way that's stirring something because, you know, they have script writers for the show that they, they rather than it being like, okay, here are your lines, they kind of say, okay, if we put so-and-so and this person together and then get this person to walk in right when they're talking about this and make them talk about that, then one of, you know, three things will happen and then we'll do this, you know? So it's... And I think that's why people love reality TV, because I think they, you know, to the extent they know it's constructed is less relevant. I think it's the fact that the reactions are so human. And so like sometimes it, look, it is fake and it seems like bad acting, but sometimes it's just those sort of car crash moments that people turn their neck and they can't help but watch. It's that sort of, you know, schadenfreude. People like watching other people City. Yeah. And I don't say that in a, it's just a very human thing. I mean, when you think about it that way, it's, we watch movies all the time exactly. that are 100% fiction. Mm. This also is fiction. It's just not sold as fiction. The, the word reality is like, you know, driving an American big old car that is guzzling fuel and calling it air cleaner. But it's also not entirely fiction. And that's the sort of strange thing about this genre of entertainment is, and from my experience, I, I became caught up in what was real and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, oh, wow. many of us on the show, we would, we would kind of play into the narratives and try and make it, try and have a sense of control in something that felt very out of control. And so we would have a conversation and afterwards, like, if it had been a really dramatic one, then be like laughing immediately. But then it all became very blurred because you then add the public into that. And that was just when Twitter had started. This is even before Instagram. And we would then have to have these accounts. And then the way the show was marketed was just, you know, the more press, the better. And so suddenly we became these talking points. But as these characters that we were also playing into and so it became this very strange surreal thing where I would read about myself as an entity that felt like a different <laughs> version so of weird. me yeah it was weird mm -hmm. but to kind of tie it back to what we were discussing a moment ago it felt like I was very I don't I don't want to sit here and say oh you know it's an awful thing like it is what it is and it has good aspects it like fast tracks you in certain ways but it's taken me perhaps writing the book to sort of recognize that I was very much a co-creator in that. Like I said yes to the show. I knew enough of what I was signing up for. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about how I felt when I was 14. I felt like that 
character I was in Made in Chelsea personified like who I thought I needed to be to fit in. And then I became it and I almost felt the worst I've ever felt. Unbelievable. What is the real character though? The one you're sitting with. So, I mean, I can describe you, but how do you describe you? Oh, how do I describe me? Soft? Mm. Shy sometimes? Totally. I could not imagine. I really could not imagine having gotten to know you. Mm. How you could be in a place where there are cameras pointed at you all the time. Well, I also have a, a, a sort of, I have, again, that kind of duality in me where I either like to be at home, quite quiet, doing my things, keeping to myself. But I also love the stage. I love performing. That is... There is a difference. Stage and performing is... There is a difference, you're right. Mm, and I Yeah, and I think that I perhaps thought that it was more going to satisfy me as a performer. I mean, that was a, a big reason I got involved in the show anyway, was because of music. Mm. Yeah. And so Made in Chelsea ends. How old were you then? So I was 23, 24. And it didn't, I abruptly left. Yeah, exactly. And without, for you, I meant. Yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah. it was, yeah. You just couldn't do it anymore. I just felt, the way I describe it in the book is like, I felt like I was in a hot air balloon without any means of coming back down. Because it was... It so was, you jumped. Yeah, so I jumped. <laughs> because it was speeding up and I didn't have, I wasn't grounded in myself. And I think that that is, we see that a lot in celebrity, in this, a person being crafted by, whether it's producers, whether it's management, whether it's record label, because that it's packaged in a way that is selling a product essentially. Mm. And then if that happens too young, which it often does, we don't have our own sense of identity to kind of hold on to, to, to fight with. And we then kind of lose, lose our sense of self. Mm. And I didn't, I could just feel that happening. And I, I, I really want to add as a caveat here, like I don't want to, I'm always conscious of not, um, of sounding ungrateful and I acknowledge like my position in this world and that I'm very fortunate and that you know a lot of people would dream to be in the position I was but I'm just just for my own experience that wasn't my destiny you know that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing because it just never felt it never felt quite right for me can I ask what would have happened if you stayed where that trajectory would have taken you? If I'd stayed on the show. Mm -hmm. Sliding doors. Sliding doors. I think about that. I used to think about it more. I don't so much anymore, but I mean, bear in mind at this moment in time or that moment in time, I was incredibly reckless. I was quite wild in my behavior. I was constantly pushing the boundaries of things. Yeah. Until that moment in time. From your very young 15 year old at least from what you wrote in the book. What, from 15, I was wild. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I started going out in London pretty young. I can't picture that. Like your first love you met 
In a nightclub. In a nightclub at age 15. Yeah, which now looking back, when I look at 15-year-olds, I think that's awful. And also, I looked so young for 15. You, you look 15 I, now. I was like, <laughs> I looked, I was the one with friends that we'd go to the pub and they would say, she is not coming in because she looks so young. But yeah, we just, I think it was a, it was a very was different. He? he was 16. Oh my God. So the, the system was completely wrecked. Yeah, uh -huh. I think it's changed a lot now, but we were going out in London very young, behaving like we were in our 20s. So I kind of did it all quite early. So by that point, I was, um, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, that what the lifestyle that went with it as I well know. was... Yeah a lot yeah. more partying and everything like that. So I, I guess I was kind of constantly pushing the boundaries. So to go back to your question, I don't know where that would have ended. I think a part of me was concerned where it would go because I was concerned with my own behavior was going to come at a cost at some point. And the consequences of that would have perhaps been very detrimental in one way or another. Mm. But in another world... Perhaps I stayed and became more grounded and, and utilized it to... Has anyone stayed from the original cast? A lot of... They all stayed longer than I did. And then, you know, one by one they've left. But they... I would say people have definitely worked it better than I did. Mm. How is that? Like what possibilities? Would I think having the awareness of that it's a vehicle for something. Whereas I think I just became very caught in this... Yeah, this sort of like battle of self in some way that I just wanted to escape it. Yeah, I think battle of self is actually probably the most valuable quest that anyone can ever get caught in. And I actually think this is probably one of the, remember the first time we had our first conversation, I called you a seeker, mm -hmm. someone who is constantly searching, which I think in the, world of spirituality is probably one of the higher honors to be a seeker, to be just constantly searching. And I think there is value in that. And, and, I, and I think that's what you did after Made in Chelsea. So you went to LA right after that? I actually went to Australia. First. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Just, just to cover the two corners. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Which actually I sort of consider my spiritual home. Like that is beautiful place. I went yeah it's amazing I went when I was younger with my family and just had this very strong soul connection to the country and yeah it was quite profound experience at the age of about 11 and wrote this book of poetry whilst I was there and drawings and I'd written this poem at the end about how Australia held the key to my heart and I wanted to live there one day so it was always sort of like in the back of my mind that that's something I wanted to do and then um I'd been a couple of times during Maiden Chelsea breaks. And then after a bit of time back in London and doing music, I just, I just wanted to leave. I just wanted to leave London. I felt like London was so representative of a person I was trying to move away from. Yeah. I mean, you write this openly in the book and it's a bit eye-opening for me because you're, you're in London now. Mm -hmm. I never really managed to love London and never really managed to hate it. You haven't? It. No. 
Like every time I come to London, I go like, oh my God, I love this place. Oh no, 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 I hate it. No, I love it. No, no, I hate it. And there is something about this place. I think the people are quite, when you find the right people, when you find the right tribe, they are really, really nourishing to your knowledge, to your wisdom, to your questions, uh, which I think is really quite interesting. But they are very far in between to find them. And and I think it's uh, the pace otherwise is just blinding and quite stressful in many, many ways. And in a way, there is a lot of judgment around, which pushes you to try and wear a blue t-shirt instead of a black one, which, you know, it's like a bit of a push for me. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I kind of, after seeking and going out and living in different places, I realized that, and I wrote about this in the book, is how I actually was perhaps just trying to outrun my own shadow. You know, perhaps it uh -huh. wasn't London that was the problem. Perhaps it was, it was the, me. It was the places you went to during the time when you were not you. Yeah. And, you know, your shadow travels with you. So it's been a really beautiful thing coming back to London, feeling more grounded in who I am and cultivating a life and friendships that nourish that, like you say. But it was it was hard. And it's probably the thing that I get asked most about on the podcast or through social media is people saying, how do I find my people? How do I find my tribe? Mm. And that's, it's a very untapped area. Um, the grief and the heartache of friendships, mm. you know, especially as we navigate our late twenties, because we change so much as people mm. and friendships kind of fall by the wayside. And we, we don't, we talk about breakups romantically, but we don't talk about breakups and friendship and the sadness that comes with that. And I felt that there was a, a moment of sort of exile in my late twenties, just before my Saturn return really, where I kind of had departed from a circle that was just not in alignment with who I was trying to become. But there was this moment in between where there was just this void mm. and I felt very lonely. Mm. But the more I kind of stepped through that and started leaning into practices and things that felt in alignment with me. I just found and gravitated towards people that just came into my life in kind of weird and wonderful ways. And then that slowly started to form what I have today. So when you went to LA, you went for music and you also didn't find that LA life to be your place. And you returned back to London. You were 28 then? I was 28. Yes, I was 28. Interesting. So at 14 is your first cycle, boarding school. At 21 is made in Chelsea. At 28, uh, you're now back almost deciding to be a new person. This astrology seems to be accurate. Is it? So explain this to me. Look, I'm a believer, okay? But I'm also an engineer. So I need to understand how the machine works. You know this about me. So I believe in palmistry. When, when, yeah, when I read Ali, my palm. Yeah, I did. And it's very accurate. And when my son uh, died, Nibel, my wife then, was sort of trying to explore life in interesting ways to 
maybe figure things out if you want. And so she went into many, many tangents, if you want. One of them was palm tree, and she was going to this healing center and they had a palm tree course on a Sunday and we were free. So I said, yeah, let's go. And that was before my book came out. The teacher held my palm and said, are you writing a book? And I said, yeah. And he said, it's going to do very well. It's going to be very successful. I was like, what do you mean? Like, how did you know that? And he showed me the lines on my palm, which are actually quite weird because my uh, fate line changes direction after Ali dies from my focus on the corporate world and making money to this helping people. So I sat down like a very good student and that stuff actually has merit to it. I mean, it's true. You you know, when I read your poem, that one, one, you know, some of the things I spoke about or many of the things I spoke about were very accurate. The way I explain it is that perhaps as we come into the physical world, we get some sort of a barcode on our hand that basically says specs, you know, that's my engineering way of understanding it. Here are your specs. Here is how you can live your life. And, you know, on the other palm, here is how you're living your life. So it's a spec sheet, basically. I can, I can get that. I can also understand that the universe in its entirety is fully integrated and that the positions of planets and so on might affect our behaviors. And, but that's not how astrology is normally sold to us. How is it normally sold? A bit fakish. Well, I think it's important to address that I think the astrology that you're referring to that perhaps quite a lot of people might view it as is the new age kind of woo-woo mystic yeah. meg horoscopes yeah. in a newspaper that all kind of you could read any of them and they sound applicable to you but the more I've delved into it and you know just to add I'm not an astrologer but I have a community of people that I trust that know so much and it always blows my mind but this is this is not a new practice. And I think that the idea really is that there is a dialogue between, you know, our inner world and and the cosmos around us. And I think that's such a beautiful thing to kind of lean into. And for me, it was, if it has meaning, it, it matters. Mm. If the birth chart, when you're having a conversation with someone, if you're going through a, a period where you're feeling lost and someone did your chart and something landed for you and it made sense. I think that that, even if we dismiss all the rest, is significant enough. But I also just love this notion that each planet has an effect on us, that there is a rhythm in how we're living our lives that is kind of, it's a dance between fate and free will. Hmm. It's, that was going to be my next question. I mean, in an interesting way, planets are a little bigger than I am. Does that mean they have more impact on me than what I choose to do? Well, this is one of the sort of big things around astrology. And you do notice a lot of people saying, especially in the way that it's been popularized today, saying, oh, no, Mercury's in retrograde, which it... Hey, they tell me that stuff and I'm like... Yeah. yeah. And, and if when people use it as a sort of cop-out that it's that they don't have any kind of control over what's happening or things will go wrong because of it. And also, you know, your Saturn return, people people view your Saturn return or view Saturn 
as a scary moment in astrology. It's got a a lot of fear around it because it's this time where everything kind of falls apart. You get challenged in a lot of aspects of your life. But my view on it is it's actually so you can discover your most authentic self. Yeah, you wrote this. Things fall apart so better things can come together. I love that. So, so explain Saturn in, in that case. So from what I understood, which was actually quite approachable for me, is that Saturn has something to do with your karmic cycle, if you want, and that when it returns, so every time Saturn is in season, is that the right word? Is in season? Uh, I don't know what the right word is. Well, so Saturn as a planet takes that amount of time to orbit back to the same place in the sky it was when you were born. Okay. So with its return, they say it brings this sort of cosmic coming of age, this initiation into adulthood, because it is a planet that is associated with karma, with structure, with boundaries. It's about discipline. It's about responsibility. Sort of coming to say... Who decided that? I don't actually know who the first person that decided it was, but it's not a new thing. You know, you look into Greek mythology and it's it's everywhere. So this is the bit that, I mean, my engineering mind goes like, people, like someone explained this to me. What, where? Like, why is Saturn about karma and not about digestive system activity? I mean, who decides that? That, unfortunately. But, you know, astronomy and astrology used to be kind of one of the same thing and then yeah. they sort of departed ways from each other and then one became you know respectable and one became a charlatan's practice <laughs> okay i mean in in, a, in an interesting way i have to admit did you say mercury uh, in retrograde uh, yeah yeah this has been happening recently for a while yeah and every like i a lot of the women in my life the women i know friends my daughter and so on will just warn me, like literally send me <laughs> as if there is a tsunami coming. Hey, by the way, tonight this is happening. And it's been in Libra, so it's been targeting relationships. Okay. So the, when Mercury's retrograde, because Mercury is you know, the messenger, it means that things can get a little bit confused in communication. So they say that it disrupts technology, that you sort of should triple check that this is recording because you might not have actually pushed, pushed <laughs> the it? button. Yeah. That's what, and I mean, look, you know. Damn, you're worrying me now. <laughs> yeah, but then when things happen like that during that time, I always think, well, my career is retrograde. But, you know, as you all have gathered from the book, for me, astrology is really a means of storytelling. Yeah, and I love that. And I, and I love how the story unfolds. But I, I, I also love the idea of, hey, by the way, your life is going to break down in cycles. And it's interesting because when you said the seven-year cycle, there are a lot, a lot of spiritual stories, Joseph and the Pharaoh, and, you know, so many stories are in that seven-year cycle. Interestingly, how sort of life constantly reinvents itself in a rhythmic way, which I believe is very interesting and true. It's just the seven years, basically every one of those cycles, you have to sort of relive again, redefine yourself again. And I think that's probably the way you wrote the book. You were, you were really telling the story around those cycles. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. And I hope that by doing that, 
for anyone reading it can sort of recognize that there is, you know, like a rhythm in it. Because I think we unfortunately live a lot of our lives in a paralyzing state of regret. Mm. You know, should we have taken a different road? Should we have done this thing? And we, we kind of cause ourselves to stall because we become burdened by fear. Yeah. And I think astrology allows you to flow with things better. There's multiple avenues you could go down, but you kind of have to trust the unfolding of things. You know, I used to live a lot of my life in this sort of victimhood mentality, really, thinking that things were happening to me, not for me. Mm. And I think a lot of people do that without necessarily being conscious of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You say that every one of us has an astral body. That was Nora. Okay, so tell us about Nora before you tell us what she said. Okay, so Nora, you know, as I added, as I said a moment ago, I'm not an astrologer. I just love astrology. Mm-hmm. And I have a particular obsession with Saturn, <laughs> which is strange. I actually went to Glastonbury a couple of weeks ago and there were some astronomers there and they started talking to me about Saturn and it's just perhaps it's because I've been building Saturn returns and therefore I'm more interested in it but it really feels like something that I've connected with more so than any other aspects of astrology from 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 the way you taught me about it in the book it really fits you honestly yeah that constant reinvention of yourself yeah it's almost the story of your life it's so clear and also because I would consider myself perhaps very unsaturnian as a person in the sense that I didn't have very strong boundaries. I wasn't very responsible. I definitely wasn't disciplined. So the the teachings from it have been the most important to me. So Saturn's also about discipline. Yes. But you said somewhere in the book that it's about liberating ourselves from the shackles of an immature Saturn. So, so there is something about our set beliefs that are sort of because of a defective pattern, you know, Saturn sort of. What do you mean? So if pattern is about discipline, sticking to our beliefs is part of discipline, isn't it? If they're the right beliefs for the uh, right reasons. Yeah. So how do you know? well, it'll show you. So we all have beliefs, right? And if we have are governed by certain beliefs that are actually not true or not in our best interest, let's say to apply it to the sort of personal development lens, let's say I believe that in order to be loved, I have to be perfect. That is a belief. And that can be the reason I go about life in a certain way. That might be manifest in career decisions I make or things that I stop doing romantically, friendship, whatever, you can apply it to anything. But that is a belief that I'm living by. And it's sort of my view that during your Saturn return, it brings those beliefs that aren't serving you to the surface. So you can really face them head on and see actually what is the underlying thing behind it and address it so that you can move past it and mature through it. And you believe that this will happen to every single one of us, but some of us will not pay attention to it. Yes. So it's not as simple as pass and fail. The lessons will keep coming back round. Hmm. 
when we have patterns of behavior, they are patterns of behavior because we are repeating them until we don't. Mm -hmm. Some people can, you have a second Saturn return when you're 59, 60, your lessons will come back around again. I was going to ask that. I mean, like, I'm too, am I too late now? Or How old are you now? I'm not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're just, it's kind of like the universe will throw pebbles in your tracks to kind of say, hey, this is not the course you should be taking or this is not the way you should, what you should be believing in. And then it will throw rocks and boulders until until you recognize it. That's my view anyway. Did you see the movie, The Life of Pi? I haven't. Oh my God, I love that movie. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but the movie is built around two stories, sort of. One of them is the main story of the movie where he's stuck on a boat with a tiger and, you know, a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. And it's beautiful. The whole drama of it is incredible. But at the end, you start to question if that story was true. And in an interesting way, when you tell the story this way, that the universe is going to throw pebbles in your way and sort of nudge you a little bit and force you to check your beliefs, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful way of looking at it. I don't know if I'm significant enough for the universe to do that for me or if anyone is really. Why not? Um, there are so many of us. It must be a very sophisticated machine to be able to send 7 billion messages every uh, cycle, right? But we're part of it. Explain. We're all energy. The way we are sitting here and connecting, the way, you know, if you believe in a soul. I do, 100%. I believe in nothing else. And then, you know, where does the soul go? Yeah, but so is that soul the astral part we were going to talk about? So the astral stuff, so the book, I had the sort of personal development, the lessons from my own experience. And then Nora, yes. who, she just sort of came into my life during this transition at about 27, 28. She sent me a message on Instagram. She had no photos. I didn't know who she was or where she'd come from. And she sent me something to do with... My music, it's just something about liking a song that I'd released. And we started engaging in a conversation and she started talking about astrology and it really fascinated me what she was saying. So we ended up continuing this dialogue that we were having and then kind of years went by and I learned, I think that that was a really, you know, she's been such a teacher for me and she does the astrology for Saturn Returns and she did the astrology for the book. So there are parts of the book where we go or she goes very deep into Saturn, astral body, stuff like that. And that's all her writing. So it says Nora's Insights. Yeah, yeah, Nora's Insights. Yeah, yeah. I, read, I read many of those, yeah. So it's it's a bit like Dr. Jill Balti-Taylor for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I absolutely admire neuroscience. And, you know, I don't know enough, but... When I need anything, I look for Jill's work and, you know, or get in touch and I learn something, sort of. Yeah. yeah. So Nora, kind of anything, I, any question I have about astrology, if I'm wondering something, she'll, she just has such a vast knowledge of it. And it is incredible 
those kind of minds that can contain that information. I unfortunately can't. It, it looks really complex for it's me. It's really that, complex. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like I, I think if I even tried my hardest, I wouldn't be able to retain that amount. But certain minds of certain people I've met, it's like discovering a language of their soul. Mm. That's the only way I can kind of describe it. They, they find astrology and it makes so much sense to them that they can just pick it up really easily. But my kind of message is that to know enough that it can help you and be a bit of a map for your life. Yeah, or find a Nora to help out. Or find a Nora, exactly. Mm. I, I need to meet Nora. Um, so, so let's go back to your story now. So you have a cycle coming up in a couple of years or so, right? If it's every seven years. Mm-hmm. Now, in every one of those cycles and the way you write the book so beautifully, you sort of learn something, you know, you come out with, of the cycle with, okay, so this is, this was the resistance. This was the belief that I needed to change. This was the karmic pattern I needed to follow. You told us the story, share with us what you learned, share with us why those cycles were important. What, each one? Mm-hmm. Well, I think each one further initiates you into becoming who you're supposed to be. You know, I think we like this idea that we're just going to arrive at 30 with it all figured out. But we don't appreciate the struggle that we have to go through. And often that's an internal struggle. You might not see it on the outside as we kind of grasp for our identity. It's something that needs to be crafted I kind of I like this analogy that we come into the world like clay and pain is the hand that sculpts the clay. Mm. You know, that's the sort of process of our becoming. And I know you've had your own experience of how things have shaped you. I think we all have that. Absolutely. And it's kind of I think that Saturn because it is considered quite a punitive planet, it can be quite aggressive in its methods. But I think that it makes you more refined, a more beautiful version of yourself because of those things that you have to navigate. So as I write in the book, the main themes as they applied to my life and, you know, depending on your chart, but they are quite general is sort of concept of autonomy. Concept called? Autonomy. Autonomy, yeah. Yeah coming into your own, learning to authorize yourself, to step into a place of you know, having responsibility over your life, which is a scary thing. We often talk about fear of failure. We don't talk about fear of success. <laughs> yep. what, what success will bring, because if we are used to being looked after, which of course, if we think about in our childhood, we are by our parents, the authority figures around us are our parents and our teachers. We're constantly told what to do. And some people in, like that and can carry that on. But I think often around 30, whether you look at it astrologically or not, we suddenly have this desire to really be our own person, to kind of break th- free from the shackles of people telling us what we're supposed to be doing from our parents, from our peers, from society. Mm. And so I think it's a really, it's a moment where we really have to ask ourselves, who am I and what do I want? What do I value? 
and how do I go after those things and not be apolog- to be unapologetic in doing so? Oh, totally. I mean, the truth of the matter is that this idea of going through your 20s in today's world is horrifying, honestly. I mean, most most people in their 20s are struggling. And, you know, I know from, of course, my wonderful Aya, my daughter and, and her friends and how difficult it is actually to to find yourself in the world. I mean, for me, it was almost like you have two paths. One is success and the other is failure. And, you know, obviously you'll have to choose the success one. So, yeah, well, now we have sort of multiple and it's this, it's this thing of overwhelm of, I guess, opportunity or options. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which we think is a progressive thing, but we haven't quite caught up mentally to that. And so my, my mum my always says, you know, when we were growing up, it was sort of here are the paths, you become a lawyer, you become doctor yeah. or whatever. And there's little things in between, but it wasn't an overwhelming amount of choice. Yeah. Whereas now we have visibility of all these things that people are doing all the time. It can become paralyzing because you think, am I supposed to be doing that? Because that's what I'm yeah. seeing. Yeah. And also this sort of, construct of perfectionism which i think is particularly difficult for women yeah i'm coming to that in a minute but i mean the idea of of choice is actually quite staggering you know in my university choice i had two that's it two good universities that were going to teach me the engineering i needed one was closer to my home choice made Right. It was really that simple. And, and people, my kids, when they were applying for, for school, the, you know, the options are infinite and, yeah. and it's quite staggering for the decision-making abilities of an 18 year old, a 20 year old, totally. it's just impossible. Cause I, I can't remember where I read it, but there was a study about a group of people that had, I think 10 options and another group that had a hundred and of course, we think, oh, the more options, the better. But actually the group that had 100 felt totally overwhelmed and couldn't decide. To go back to this sort of concept of living with regret, when you have so many different directions you could exactly. go in and you start going down one and it doesn't feel like it's going to plan, of course, you're then going to start questioning that decision and thinking yeah. you should have gone down another road instead. Yeah, it's like life has given me so many options and I chose the one that didn't work. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how clever is that? But that's not how it is actually. The truth is that every one of them will be faced with a few challenges and a few failures. It's, it's That's the truth. It's it Honestly, it doesn't matter which path you take. I think our generation felt that, that it doesn't matter which path you take it. What matters is what are you going to make of it, right? So once that path is, if you don't have so many options, take, you know, the one closer to your home and then see the best that you can do with it, basically. But I think this is why astrology is important for today's generation, because it allows the reassurance that there are lessons and struggles, that it is the right path. Mm. So how would it tell me that it's the right path? Because it would say in your chart. Would it? Mm-hmm. Who's going to make my chart? Nora can do your chart. And then she what? can read your chart. And then we tell the whole world about it on a podcast. If you felt comfortable with sharing that, ah, but I mean, it's not as like, oh, you you were a hundred percent going to do this. But for instance, with me, I can see when I look at my chart that perhaps like 
the role of a therapist would have been something I could go down, something that involves connecting and communicating with people of holding space. So that was enough of a reassurance for me to go, okay, well, I might not be being a therapist, but in sort of today's modern world, I'm holding space by doing a podcast and this feels in alignment with me. So it just kind of, yeah, reflects back that you are kind of doing the right thing. And I love that. I think, uh, I honestly, once again, like the life of Pi, it doesn't really matter which choice. Doesn't, yeah. Right? What matters is that you get a bit of assurance around it that basically says, yeah, that's nice. It's, it's okay. Yeah. When my Palm Street teacher says, you, are you writing a book and it's going to succeed? I don't know. Maybe my ex-wife told him. I, don't, I have no idea, but it doesn't matter. It just felt really good. So I went out and continued to write the book and succeeded. So, But that's the thing. That's what we need in today. I agree. When today's world feels so uncertain in so many ways and we've lost, religion doesn't play such a big part anymore as mm, it used to, mm. but we still have an appetite and a desire for the mystical. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's part of the human condition. And so whatever the individual finds that satisfies that, like, fantastic. I'm with you 100%. I mean, with all of those choices for the 20-some-year-olds, I think women have it hardest, basically, because of that concept of perfection that you spoke of, that idea of I need to be perfect, I need to be perfect. This seems to be something that you gave a lot of thought to. The chapter around perfectionism. Mm. Mm -hmm. Still something I struggle with. Do you really? Mm -hmm. Because you're perfect or because you're not? Because I still, that voice still sometimes stirs and says that I need to be in order to be loved. You know, I mentioned that as an example of a belief earlier because it was one of mine. Uh, clearly, yeah. Yeah. And so... Have you, have you ever met anyone that was? I mean... Perfect. Other than me. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I find that belief to be quite painful, really, because nobody painful. ever will be. Well, exactly. But a lot of these things that drive us are unachievable because perhaps in our upbringing, and this isn't to, you know, blame anyone or anything like that, but we might pick up this idea that we have to be something in order to be loved or that we aren't worthy of love as we are. Mm -hmm. And that can be a driving force and it can look on the exterior as very successful. A lot of people that are driven by that, living a seemingly great life, mm -hmm. but it never is enough. You'll never reach a point of real satisfaction because like you said, it's an unattainable goal. It really is. Mm. Seems the other side of that comment that you made is love. So I need to be perfect to be loved. I think one of my favorite quotes in the entire book, part three, I think, was unconditional love does not mean unconditional tolerance. There are so many nuggets of gold as I read through because in a very interesting way, I felt your vulnerability as a young woman uh, going through the pain that a lot of young women will go through. And obviously, every young woman goes through the phase. The toxic love phase, I call toxic it. Love, toxic love, toxic <laughs> love. Uh, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> but you seem to have, again, worked through your cycles to find your place in that. 
in love. And at least not having toxic ones. Yes. And that area of relationships and partnership is somewhere I kind of see myself going into in the future more because I am fascinated by it because it's something that we all, we all need. We're relational creatures. We need one another. Mm. We're dependent on each other. And yet we know so little about it and are taught so little about it at school. It's only through our own sort of heart shattering experience. Do we hopefully learn a little bit and, you know, to tie it back into astrology, part, I, I think it was Nora in a reading said that it was like part of my karma or life path that I will learn through relationships. But if we just kind of leave that for a second, I think we all learn through relationships and that relationships are the ultimate mirror to our own healing or to our own, to the aspects of ourselves we cannot see when we're alone. I find that interesting. So I'm I'm writing about the topic too, but my book is going to shock a lot of people because I, I truly use mathematics, literally economics, business, and game theory to explain relationships, okay. uh, which is I, probably going to be my biggest failing book ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we, we will probably come at it from such, because, you know, as we discussed I, when we no. first met, you are have quite a masculine linear way of thinking and mine is... Absolutely. I mean, squeakly I, 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 this, abstract, is, this is why I was really smiling when you said you want to work on this, because the truth, however, is that it's funny because the way we learn from relationships is almost like basically putting someone in a very fast Bugatti Veyron and basically saying, okay, every accident you make, you're going to learn something like every, every person you squish on the way or every, you know, truck that squishes you you're going to learn how to drive. And that's really weird. I mean, yeah, that no, is it. That right? is, it's a great analogy. Yeah. No, nobody really tells you in relationships. But people if, don't even tell you that. They just give you the keys <laughs> and say, good luck. Go. Yeah. But go. you don't even realize that you're learning to drive. That's, yeah. that's the bizarre thing is that we don't realize <laughs> so that le- like that the relationships we have are teachers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I speak about this, how we, we often fall into this narrative of like one is, the victim and one is the perpetrator yeah, and especially in the I demise of a relationship it's like you did this wrong mm. you let me down you hurt me rather than you know and this again ties into the themes of saturn like how much more empowering is it to say how did i co-create the situation mm. how did i participate mm. in its demise mm. what can i learn mm. how can i better myself for the next person i meet mm. and that is like everything and look don't get me wrong i i often struggle with it myself sometimes i fall back into a pattern of many things but i recognize it a lot quicker than i used to yeah i think that the reason i highlight that quote of unconditional love does not uh, warrant unconditional tolerance Mm -hmm. is because it sort of is the emergency off switch if you want I mean, if people just keep that in mind, go into a relationship, but you know, once it's not right, there is no unconditional tolerance. You know, you you need to start, you need to start reacting very quickly when it's messing up. Yeah. And also I was going to say that it's quite a female trait, but I don't necessarily know if that's true, but I would say that 
women are more inclined to shape shift and alter themselves in relationship. Exactly. I'm going to make a sort of gender generalization there. And so within that, we can abandon ourselves quite easily because we've been taught to, been conditioned to. And it's something, you know, this idea that women are to be chosen, not choosing, mm. that we only kind of come alive once taken off the shelf. So within that, we are constantly thinking of how we are going to alter ourselves. But what I've recognized is that actually all those times that I did do that and self-abandoned, somewhere down the path, I realized that this wasn't my path. And it wasn't the other person's fault because I'd done it. But to go back and find your own path, it becomes harder the further along you go. And so, you know, unconditional love and unconditional tolerance, it's like, I call it a bittersweet victory because when we are in something that is unloving mm -hmm. and that, you know, we're with someone that isn't right for us, it's not necessary to say that they're better or they're worse, but they're just not right for us. The nuances of why certain people work together are like often beyond our comprehension. But to be able to say this doesn't meet my non-negotiables and non-negotiables sounds like quite a harsh term when we're speaking about the realms of love but it's so crucial and to be able to check in with yourself and be like this is not meeting me meeting me where i need to be met and sometimes loving someone means letting them go but the bittersweet victory in that is when we recognize that we've chosen ourselves and that's something it took me a really long time to do I actually don't think it's non-negotiables are a big thing for love at all. I mean, I mean, the reality is what I talk about ex explicitly in uh, in finding love is the idea that let's not call this love. Relationships are made up of so many other things. It's you know, love is one of them. But in my view, love is fundamental. Love is always there. It doesn't have to end when the relationship ends. It doesn't have to begin when the relationship begins. And love itself doesn't necessarily dictate that we need to sleep together or be partners or love is underlying those things. You can add intimacy to it and then become a couple or you can, you know, add friendships to it and, and then you become really close friends, right? And I think the idea of non-negotiables are almost entirely around things other than love in the relationship. They are about things like respect. They are about things about like partnership, things like compatibility, right? And, and these are n not touching love in itself in any way. So having, having non-negotiables is important. Sticking to them is difficult, but either way, they don't touch love. Love itself exists. I understand that, but I also... I also think that we create the love. So within the context of a relationship, that friction between one person saying, hey, this is what I need, and another person kind of either stepping in or not, is what creates a deeper level of intimacy and respect, which in turn are the kind of foundational concepts of love. Because when we, if we don't state them, and we self-abandon, but we don't communicate anything, that then builds contempt, resentment, and we then stop loving, we withdraw the love. Yeah, my book is gonna fail miserably. 
<laughs> I, I, well, it's I, just I, that's just the way I, I it's, view it's, it. It is. So, so I'm trying to 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 show. I agree. By the way, it ends the love story, but it doesn't end the love. So what I'm what I'm trying to say, you know, I'm a physicist in, at heart at the end of the day. So I'm trying to say that if you understand a bit of quantum field theory, you understand there are fundamental particles that make up everything. Now, this is in the physical world. I'm trying to say that in the spiritual world, there are fundamental elements that make up everything. Love and consciousness are part of them, that love exists as fundamental, that it's unaffected by our our behavior, the love story is affected. So when you said those things are not there, it affects respect and intimacy. Yes, respect and intimacy are different things mm -hmm. than love. And that, and in that case, you know, yeah, the love story is supposed to end. The love story is supposed to not, uh, uh, you know, linger, mm -hmm. but the love itself is still fundamental. Still remains. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think the way that I've kind of understood that for myself is we think when a love story ends that the love goes but yeah. what I've learned is that actually the love you experience you contain in yourself anyway exactly that energy that you shared with a partner or that that person ignited within you was always within you yeah it doesn't need that person absolutely. to exist absolutely absolutely it it just put the spotlight on that person and now that person is seen and that person uh, makes the choices. I will just go back to the idea because of unconditional love and unconditional tolerance to say that this is probably the best advice ever for anyone going through a difficult love story is that honestly love story decisions are made here in 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 the you know in the brain sadly you know the, the love decisions are made in our heart but if the relationship's not working it, it you know tolerance is probably uh, a very bad um, choice you know of of behavior you need to either work on it to make it work or you need to end it and i think that's uh, i know but i i also empathize with those listening that are going through it because i know how difficult that is when it feels like there is a war between the head and the heart yeah i will openly say i so enjoyed reading this i so enjoyed reading it and it's not my kind of read okay it's so feminine so poetic so vulnerable so humble yet full of incredibly eye-opening like you drop sentences in the middle i think when you're dropping them you're like yeah and then you know we're gonna have tea but they're so eye-opening like i stop and i highlight them and it's such a beautiful book and i so loved it because i always like to close my podcasts with that question toward the end of your book you also had a beautiful description of happiness and i loved that the simplicity and purity of it. So if I was to ask you your secret to happiness, what would that be? My secret to happiness. I actually wrote a poem about this a couple of years ago, which we put in the book, but then we took out because... Editors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I wish I had it on me, but it, it's called The In-Between. Mm. And it says happiness is found in the in-between, in the moments that make up your morning routine. It's in meeting your lover when they stir from a dream, 
feet under covers, sunlight, morning beams, or the grinding sound of your coffee machine, happiness is found in between. It's waking up slow, it's tea with jam on toast, it's deep belly laughs, it's your mum's Sunday roast. It's knowing the greatest currency you'll ever truly need isn't printed on paper, but it comes for free. It's in the kindness of strangers, just like you and me. Happiness is found in the in-between. It's not the things you wish to own, the car you drive or a bigger home. It's the little things that softly weave the fabric of life from which we breathe. I can't remember how it ends. Come on. (laughs) So can we strive for more but be content with less and know that some days you'll conquer and some you'll rest. You don't have to be perfect to be doing your best for life is a series of trials and tests of ups and downs and often a mess and sometimes we'll get it wrong but like a dance we'll finesse. So take a deep breath Place your hands on your chest. You are here, you are loved, and for that, you are blessed. And that's why I love her. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I remember that. It was, yeah, something like that. It's beautiful. But that's what, like, for me, well, poetry is happiness, but also just recognizing that actually it's in those, like, little moments in between the big ones. Yeah. And it's in those moments that we can find every single day. Mm-hmm. We can find them, we can enjoy them, but instead we live our life thinking about the moments that we don't have. That the people with 380,000 followers on Instagram seem to have. Our teachers or our parents told us we should have, but it's always found in the in-between. I am very, 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 very grateful that you came I'm very grateful that you wrote this book. I'm very grateful that you shared so openly and vulnerably so much more actually on the book. I think this will be a big success and I think you should continue to do more of that. And I think you should go back to the editors and say, what's wrong with you? Put the poem back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. Actually, you have the the letter to self at the very end. Yes, I do. We had one poem. And one poem. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, which again makes it such an unusual read for me mm-hmm. because like the Kagi that I know, something pops up when you feel like it. Mm-hmm. And it's like the whole book is just... What I feel like. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's so interesting. But that's I, very me. It is, but it's also how you lived and it's also how you learned and it's also how you moved from Made in Chelsea to being a songwriter and singer and songwriter to what you're doing now. Something pops up and you fall. <laughs> thank you so much for coming and thank you all for joining us. This has been yet one more of our wonderful get-togethers, which are a few months apart every time, but I totally uh, look forward to them because even though I don't know how I exactly learn when I'm with Kagi, I always learn something and I always enjoy the difference in the way we look at things. And uh, I always enjoy how she represents so many of her generation in her pure, true core Yet the part of that they see more is probably the part that is the celebrity and perhaps a conciliation of both, which I've seen in that uh, book, Saturn Returns, is useful for people to see the whole story.
happiness is found in the in-between and uh, I really enjoyed the in-between moments here the one and a bit hour of conversation I hope you did too I hope you share it with everyone that you feel will benefit from it and uh, yeah I hope that you allow yourself the time whether on your Saturn return cycles or when it's time whenever that is to reflect and find your true self and never deny yourself the right to find that it takes a bit of time to reflect a bit of space so it doesn't matter how busy you are allow yourself that little bit of time to slow down i love you all for listening and i will see you next time